everybody. Welcome back. It's Jacqueline. And Alana. And here's another episode of Black and Yellow for you guys. Ah, today is very exciting. It sure is. <laughs> so today is an exciting day because it kicks off a very exciting month for us. And we have a really, really rad guest who is the inspiration for this month. So if you're listening to this episode in real time, that time being August of 2020, you know that there is a pandemic happening. You know that there is a social justice movement in full swing. Uh, as far as we're concerned on this podcast, the fight for equality for women has never stopped. Mm-hmm. And people's minds are open and people are looking for ways to expand their minds, learn new perspectives, get educated, get entertained fuck it, escape, like, <laughs> and, and how do we do that? We do that by reading, we do that by books, magazines, uh, short stories, plays, essays, very long Instagram captions, poetry, and dare I age myself by saying, reading the newspaper? What? What? <laughs> this month is all about the written word. We are getting very literary this month. Literally. Uh-huh. We're talking about <laughs> all things writing. And so we have great expectations for this month. We are really excited for all of you to hear our really rad guests that we have lined up. Um, as I said, the first one that is here today on this episode of the show inspired this episode. But before we get to her full formal introduction, I'll give you a little bit of a teaser. She's a freelance writer and published author for the second time. Her name is Kylie Chung. I'm going to save all the goods for Jack because I know that she's got some in store. But (laughs) in the meantime, ladies, are we ready to put our money where our mouth is? We sure are. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to kick it off. Um... I have not thought about manicures or pedicures for a second during quarantine. That's um, true. My feet look like I have been picking up rocks with them. And I going to the nail salon has uh, not crossed my mind at all. But I did recently come across a Black-owned nail polish company called Triple O Polish. Wow. But I like to call it Ooh Polish because that's the sound that I want people to have when they see my freshly painted nails. Um, uh, But this is a small business on a mission to diversify beauty and nail care, which means that the line was created for underrepresented skin tones. Mm. And it's owned by a black woman by the name of Samantha Wechi Onieci. I tried. I hope I didn't butcher that. Um, There's tons and tons of colors that look great on all different skin tones. They also have a diversity in hand models. So it's not just young, youthful hands. It's also the hands that will ring you by the neck when you need to, but also like pull you in for a warm embrace when you absolutely deserve it, which I completely respect. Uh, There's gel nail polish. There's non-gel nail polish. There's nail care. She's rolling out with her own line of UV LED lamps so you can do your own nails at home. It's pretty full service. And she touched my heart because she used to be a nail biter, which I used to be a Mm. nail biter. And then once I invested in manicures i was like okay well i can't spend all this money and then like chew it all off um and then finally she's got a bunch of different nail color collections a lot inspired by different regions of africa or just inspired by general feminine badassery 
that uh, I can get behind as well. So triple O nail polish. I'll put it in the show notes, but check it out. Super cool. Okay, Kylie, lay it on us. Um, hi. Well, I think one business I definitely want to give a shout out to is Marcus Books in Oakland. Um, I'm a Bay Area native and Marcus Books yeah. is um, the oldest um, independent Black-owned bookstore in the country. And wow. They, yeah. Ooh. And they do um, book orders by phone. Um, and um, yeah, I definitely want to just always give a shout out to independent bookstores and make sure people know that there's other ways they can get books other than Amazon and ways that um, support our local bookstores. And um, yeah. Awesome. That's yeah. great. That's in perfect alignment with uh, our literary month as well. So, <laughs> yep, definitely. <laughs> awesome. Um, okay, so mine is uh, Alana and I always seem to kind of like be on par with like beauty yep. or coffee and tea. And we, you guys, just just for just a heads up, like we actually never really tell each other what we're picking it's almost just like a lot of the show is very like improvised uh, yep. here and there so i picked um an an asian um fashion brand called private policy in new york um, and what i love about them is that they stand for so their fashion is um based on social values and they really want to have a social impact based on what's happening in today's world. Mm. Um, so they, um, the founders are Lee and Seeing Q. Um, they um, are Parson graduates. Cool. Um, so they're all about using their global presence to bring the Asian community together, to open up a conversation around our collective identity, to support one another. Um, so what I love about them as well is that um, they are gender, completely gender neutral. So they're really reinventing how fashion is. Um, they are also really thinking about the sustainability. So a lot of their items are biodegradable, which is like wow. right up my alley. Um, it's Yeah, it's amazing. Um, a lot of their clothes are also made from recycled materials. Hmm. Um, so really just like being really conscious and aware and having that kind of green, um, you know, green impact um, kind of determining their their fashion which I really really um stand behind and I think fashion now more than ever does need to be conscious and ethical um and it has always been political um so yeah they're all about you know the rebellious style of um you know streetwear New York and they're really just pushing the boundaries so if you guys want to check them out they're on Instagram at private policy NY um they're also on private policy NY.com and you can completely just browse their collection um, and it's it's really awesome so check it out I have to say, Jack, two things. So we're for those of you who don't know, which is anyone that's not on this Zoom call, there's three of us on this Zoom call. Jackie has banging nails right now, so I feel <laughs> I'm incredibly jealous. Um, but I also like that this clothing line uses uh, sources that are available as opposed to things that are that need to be quote unquote made. I think in this time of having to get creative, having to really keep ourselves sustained with what's around us, I think that that's an incredibly important business model right. that seems so obvious. I know, right? Hasn't been for so many decades, but um, that is a really, really cool fashion line. 
I also love fashion, so I love discovering new ones. I can't wait to (laughs) check them out. I thought about you the whole time. I was like, she's going to love this. Oh, Jack, you're the yin to my yang. Okay, (laughs) throwing it back over to you. So without further ado, Without further ado, um, <laughs> our guest today was, again, the very inspiration for Literary August. She's a freelance writer and a columnist. She just published her second book. I literally Woo! have it, like, right next to me. Ah, it's so pretty see. and it's so good. Right, uh, the, the, it has a beautiful, um, mm-hmm. like, a rich purple color. And it yeah. just, it, it looks beautiful next to um, my mic. Um, <laughs> she So her second book called A Woman's Place Inside the Fight for a Feminist Future. She has articles featured in Teen Vogue, Bustle, Dame Magazine, The Mary Sue, Feministing, Britain Co. And you guys don't think you can gaslight her, okay? Mm-hmm. Because she has written a book of essays about that as well. She is a badass. Yeah. She is young. It's all about the young people in America today. Yes. She is a very literary individual. Um, we're so happy to have her. Kylie Chung, welcome to the podcast. Yay! <laughs> Thank you so much for having me and for all of those kind words. Um, I'm really <laughs> excited to be here with you today. Awesome. We are so excited to We're have excited you as to well. Have you. you and I have half, you have half of my, we have the same similar last name. So, you know, we're practically <laughs> sisters. Um, just another sister from another mother. Um, so I'm curious because I've loved your, um, your book and I've stalked you on Instagram, you know, all that <laughs> all typical that stuff. stuff. Um, uh, how did how you did become you a writer? Because I know this, this all started, started um, when you were really young, like it kind of hit you hard and fast, you know, like it, you say you're in junior year, right? Yeah. Um, well, um, I've always loved writing. Definitely. I never really, or it took me kind of a while to see myself going like in a journalistic direction. Um, I think that it was just a matter of, as you said, um, kind of at that really formative stage in my life, I think that was when I kind of started to discover the power of my voice and understand like how my lived experience had value and power. And just, it came from a place of really wanting, wanting to like speak up for Mm. people who shared my experiences and for, um, yeah, I think that I think that it really came from a place of just wanting to give voice to some of um, the experiences that I describe in the book from um, sexual violence to um, kind of seeking reproductive health care. And I think that um, I think that just finding the power of my voice and the importance of speaking up for experiences like mine. But yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's amazing. Um, I was speaking to you a little bit earlier when we were off air. Um, and I remember kind of telling you that, you know, when I was reading um, the beginning of your book, it was almost like you were literally describing my experience from like, you know, growing up in a predominantly Asian community to, you know, um, secret stressful trips to Planned Parenthood um, and just all these things that I was like, yeah, I'm not the only one. Um, and so do you have I love you have so much to say and it's so mm-hmm. wonderful. Um, do you have a specific um, process that you go through? Is it kind of like stream of consciousness? Do you just, are you very structured? How do, how do you, how do you specifically write a book now that you've written two and you've mm-hmm. written so many other things? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think that um, it definitely started a lot. Like my, both the first book of essays I wrote and this one that I, that this more recent one, a lot of it started with um drawing connections between themes and like cultural mm. cultural and political events and lived experiences through the past 
few years and wanting to expand on and tie all of those connections together um, from like the um, really mounting trends of attacks on reproductive health care to um, Me Too and Yes All Women and all of the backlash around that and lived experiences and um, all of that. And so in terms of writing process, um, I definitely say it starts out kind of as word vomit of just putting all those ideas down, um, getting them all out, and then going back to refine and add more details later. But yeah, that's kind of how I approach things. Kylie, do you, in, in your search to become a journalist or to journalistic writing, do writers try on different styles of writing for size? Like, are you like, hmm, let me try on fiction writing for size. Okay, no, that doesn't work. Let me try on short stories. Okay, no, essays. Like, like, is that a thing that writers do? I don't know. Sorry, non-writer here. <laughs> I've definitely tried, like, randomly just, like, tried, like, opening a Google Doc and doing some fiction. And it can be fun and it can be a nice outlet for creativity. But mm. I also just think that for me, um, I don't know. I just like to be really direct and just kind of like state like the opinions I have and the arguments I want to make. I Got love it. how opinionated you are. Mm-hmm. You're like, like I yeah. was reading the book and I was like Absolutely. snapping in the air and I was like, you go girl. Like you tell them, you tell them how you feel. You tell yeah. them what you think. Cause I mean, this mm-hmm. is what Alana and I do on the show. So it was just kind of like, so like perfectly. Yeah. Um, like what you were saying was what I like, like to say and be on the show. So I kind of like living through you um, in the book and it was great. I was like, it's fantastic. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, Alana and I uh, did an episode that never got aired. <laughs> just we had so some sound know. issues. <laughs> we had huge, uh, yeah, we had some sound issues as usual. Welcome to the podcast world. Um, we did an episode about how the literary, literary um, industry is very heavily, do- uh, heavily male dominated. And we were specifically talking about like self-help books and how they target women, um, you know, to make money off of us. <laughs> so being a writer um, in an industry that is a male dominated one, particularly a white male dominated one, have you ever come into issues or situations where you are faced with um, you know, um, an editor or someone who can have the possibility of bringing your book into the industry, um, but he might be a man or, you know, anything in terms of, of that. Yeah, sure. Um, well, thank you so much for, um, for yeah, making that really important point. Um, I think that I really um, appreciated um, the progressive and supportive people I worked with at North Atlantic Books on my book, who I think really encouraged me to develop my voice and feel empowered to get personal um, about Mm. my experiences. And um, yeah, I definitely don't take that for granted, knowing that um, power in publishing has always really resided with whiteness and with men and with those people choosing which stories get told and which don't. Um, And I definitely think in terms of my experience publishing articles and publishing writing. I have worked um, mostly with women in, in women's media and that's, um, and I've had really supportive experiences, but I definitely, um, I definitely do, or I definitely read about and hear about um, a lot of what you've said about those. Um, yeah. About the continued male dominance and the harm that that has for women, for women of color in publishing. But, yeah. Yeah. You overcame it. Yeah, you're the lucky one. You like (laughs) slipped right through. (laughs) You got it. And we appreciate that you did. 
Yeah, I think it's great. I think the fact that you started out so young and I think that you started in a time where all of this was um, coming into awareness, you know, like when Alana and I were in school, it was still a very different story in terms of the Me Too movement, you know, about even just um, Asians having, being seen and, and, you know, hearing our voices and all of that, even with like the 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 movie industry is you know a direct reflection of that and that all of that happened in what end of 2018 2019 feels kind of recent (laughs) yeah um so this after reading the book um it definitely feels like a rallying cry for women for all walks of life um and feminists from you know varying waves um you talk about it being the end or going through the fourth wave um Mm -hmm. Now that you've definitely studied this and um, seems like you're really, you're so passionate about it, um, which so are we. So, you know, we're, we're all talking about the same things here. Do you feel a difference between, and a lot of I talk about this on the show too, about um, the difference between Gen Z feminism and other generations? Because are you a Gen Z? <laughs> I feel old. Yeah, I think I am, but like on the later end. So sometimes okay. there are a few things that are a bit hard to relate to, but yeah. I think I still am. Yeah. Okay, sweet. So you are you do 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 you feel a difference between what your uh let's say your age group has kind of gone through based on what you've heard or known or you know like being amongst like older sisters of color like how does that how does that shape your um i guess what do you call that like differences amongst the two or yeah generations Mm -hmm. um definitely i think so something i really try to like emphasize in the book i just wrote is that i do think we constantly see that Um, oppressions and especially like gender-based oppressions don't fully go away but kind of often just change forms Mm. and I think that we've seen um, previous feminist struggles have been a lot for rights and for legality for example around abortion or like legal recognition and definitions of domestic and sexual violence and I think now today we're fighting for more than basic legal rights but Mm -hmm. actual implementation that supports all people and leaves no one behind um, and I think that I can give specific examples quickly. I think that like for abortion Please. and reproductive rights, um, that means supporting a reproductive justice framework, which was created by black women, not even long ago, like in the 1990s, but of knowing that we have to fight for not just abortion rights, but for the right to parent or not parent or live mm-hmm. and thrive um, in safe and healthy communities. And that includes, but isn't limited to abortion rights. And on top of that, I definitely think we need to be able to actually access care, every one of us, um, not just white women, cisgender straight women, um, not just those with the financial resources. And so today, I think the challenges we face are many like sneaky restrictions or financial barriers to abortion, birth control, other essential reproductive care, and whether that's like state laws that are shutting down clinics or insurance coverage bans. And all of it's all of this and not just direct abortion bans that are meant to push care out of reach. And so I think definitely like pushing beyond that legality framework. Um, and I mean, where sexual violence is concerned. Um, yes. I mean, today there are legal definitions and in theory, there are um, um, legal protections for victims that feminism for from previous generations really, really fought hard for. Um, mm-hmm. And I think today we need to seriously confront um you know, things like the unequal distributions of 
credibility in, in who the public cares about as victims based on race or socioeconomic status or orientation, identity, immigration status. And we need to, you know, yeah, yeah, confront what it means to actually believe and support women and survivors, even when it's difficult or goes against like our perceptions of like what the perfect victim is and all of that and how we really um, support them, how we confront like a broader rape culture that puts so many women, girls and queer and trans folks, um, especially those who are people of color in danger. And yeah, again, it goes back to like pushing beyond that um, legal framework and those legal rights that previous feminisms have fought for. But yeah, sorry for that rant. No, don't no, be sorry. You're, don't be sorry at that all. Was great. I mean, we're eating it up. <laughs> it was interesting to read your book uh, while I think it was last week there was a law passed in a couple of different states where certain companies have the right to deny access to birth control if they feel like it's a it's morally against what their company stands for. And I found myself going, huh, tell me a job, any job, maybe short of sex work, which is a different uh, which is in a different sort of field that a woman engaging in premarital sex is problematic for the company that she works for. Like, tell me a situation where what a woman does in her own private home, how does that then reflect on sexually? That is, how does that then reflect on the the greater outlook and ethos of a large company or a small company, quite frankly? Um, and I found myself going, how racist of a judgment is that? But also just how incredibly... Um, I don't know a better way of saying this, but fucked up. Yeah, for, for sure. Oh my god, for for the next generation that has to to either deal with the unwanted pregnancies or has to parent these children that they weren't really prepared for, and how that strains our society. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Little I, t- tirade there. I, all all the tirades. <laughs> um, I love you said a really good word in your um, in what you said was sneaky. And I love that. Mm. I love that phrase where it's like, when you take a, like you said, when, when you do take a step back, you realize that like, it's just kind of slightly changed, but we're still fighting for the similar values and rights and, 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 and the basic needs. Um, but that is like, you've kind of hit me like, wow, like it's all really sneaky and we don't realize it until, you know, we're either talking about it right now or something happens again. And it's like, why are we still dealing with this? Mm-hmm. You know, like, why are we still fighting for the right to have an abortion or not? And fighting and and, and men telling us <laughs> that we shouldn't have it. Like it blows my mind, but I'm, I'm so grateful that you spoke about that and that um, you said the word sneaky because it is. It's, mm-hmm. And I think that you also answered your own question, Jackie. What's the, why men, why the patriarchy? That's the, that's why. Right. Right. Um, Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I, Alana's going to take over from here after this question, but um, historically when it comes to movements that spark radical change, um, you know, women of color, marginalized voices are generally at the forefront um, of all of that based on everything that we've gone through since COVID-19 with, you know, hate crimes, xenophobic acts happening directly at us, um, at all all kinds of Asians, you know, didn't even matter if you were Chinese or not Chinese, blew my mind if you were like 80 or 12, you know, like it was happening all over the world, Um, as well as, you know, African-Americans being, the targeted group for COVID-19 and having, you know, the biggest amounts of deaths in, you know, all of um, most of America. 
what what do you think is the emotional toll on that? Yeah, definitely. I know it's a, it's a loaded question. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, well, I definitely, and this is something I really try to um, emphasize in my book, believe that it should never fall on people who are trying to survive oppressions to also mm-hmm. have to fix mm-hmm. them or exert yeah. that you know emotional energy of trying to educate and fix other people and fix greater systems, you know, all while we're being the ones forced to live in those oppressive systems and deal with the consequences of that on a personal level. Um, I think definitely um, people with the most privilege are the ones who should be doing the most, you know, whether that's like rape culture, whether that's supporting um, Black Lives Matter or all of that. I definitely think that, you know, we, when we say we need solidarity, um, solidarity isn't making greater and greater demands of the labor and emotional labor and expertise of marginalized people. You know, I think that um, one really important example of that is definitely, I think, like, um, amid, like, this anti-racist uprising, there's been a lot of demands on, I think, like, Black women to, you know, give their time and energy to, like, recommend books or, like, sit or, like, um, you know, help white people, like, deal with their white guilt. And, like, (laughs) I think, yeah, and I just think, you know, that isn't solidarity. That's, like, making like disproportionate demands of people who are experiencing these oppressions in a real way and forcing people to not only like, again, survive these oppressions, but also like be the ones to fix them. And um, yeah, I'm not sure if that answers your question, but that's kind of what I'm. Absolutely. It's you, uh, you talk about solidarity and I, it shoots me back to a couple of years ago. I think it was the feminist writer, Mickey Kendall. She started the hashtag solidarity is for white women. And she basically started it because she said a lot of essentially echoing a lot of what you said, which is it feels like solidarity is a thing that white women do to show support, but are still putting the emotional labor on black women to help them understand societal injustices or to help them uh, work through their white guilt. And that's ultimately like solidarity for them means one thing, but solidarity for women of color or just Mm. marginalized voices means a totally different thing. Yeah. And um, you also shot me back to a a thought of, yes, you're right. It feels like right now in this moment of COVID we are the oppressed people are also the ones that are supposed to quote unquote fix the system, but we didn't break the system. Right. It's one of those things where it's like, well, I don't want to fix something I didn't break, but at the same time, I don't necessarily trust you to fix it properly. So Mm -hmm. like how active it it almost feels like people of, of color and marginalized people right now have to decide how actively engaged they want to be which is sort of a tricky line that I feel like a lot of us are, are walking right now. Yeah, definitely. Um, definitely. Yeah, so well you said. cover a ton of different topics in the book, uh, sexism, classism, oppression, xenophobia, systemic injustice, misogyny. But after reading this book, it's very clear that you're passionate about reproductive justice and the systemic injustice that marginalized women experience feels unending. And I wanted to ask you, what are some of the key fights for abortion and reproductive rights today? And what are some of the fights that you think that we should have gotten over a long fucking time ago? But yeah, we're still fighting. Now. We're still here. Yeah. Definitely. Um, Well, I think it's so important to convey that, you know, all of those things that you mentioned, like misogyny, classism, xenophobia, um, 
racism, all of that is really deeply tied to reproductive rights in terms of like who has access to those rights and who doesn't. And I definitely think, you know, I think one of one really important um, fight that we need to see like among reproductive rights and reproductive um, justice movements is definitely um, acknowledging and addressing all of the disparate barriers that I think women of color, especially black, Latinx and indigenous women are facing in terms of accessing reproductive health care, health care, basic essentials to parent or not parent and, you know, live in healthy and safe communities. And I think um, I think definitely we need to look at things like um, how women of color are more likely to be uninsured or live in poverty or be unable to reach than yeah. um, essential care like abortion or parent children that they do have and be safe from state violence. And all of that I definitely see as deeply connected to you know, the many um, economic barriers tr- or geographic barriers, legal mm, barriers to reach sure. abortion mm-hmm. and birth control and all of that. And I definitely think also um, something um, really interesting and important is um, addressing um, barriers that um, Asian American women do face um, to reach abortion care in terms of, um, you know, facing deep racism about like their motives for seeking abortion care. And in several cases, I'm sure you've heard of um the case of Pervy Patel in Indiana, but um, yeah, facing um, criminalization for outcomes of their pregnancies or for self-managed Crazy. abortion, especially as I think um, it's really important to note that, you know, um, historically, I think that, you know, amidst the fight for abortion to be legal, there were a lot of struggles to have um, safe abortions. And I think today, one way that that fight has kind of changed is you know, with medication abortion through abortion pills, there is that really safe um, option. And yet there are also a lot of legal risks kind of associated with that since, um, you know, unfortunately we're seeing a lot of people will be criminalized for like the outcomes of their pregnancy if they're suspected of like, quote, fetal endangerment, unquote, or many things like that that have kind of um, definitely placed women of color at higher risk, Um And I think also I was kind of talking about earlier, um, you know, um, race and sex selective abortion bans are meant to stigmatize um, Asian American women who seek abortion or even deny them care altogether. And then, um, yeah, I think that all of these restrictions, you know, that impose um, significant travel time, significant costs or waiting periods or all of that on seeking abortion care, all of that kind of um, comes together and interacts in places, just a huge amount of barriers on people who have the least resources who do tend to be women of color. Um, and yeah, I think a lot of that, you know, is kind of lost in the translation of, oh, abortion is legal. And so people kind of don't think or look past that, but, um, you know, yeah, 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 I mean, I think something interesting was last summer, you know, there was that wave of abortion bans in states like Georgia, Alabama. Um, yeah. And I think, it's interesting because I think a lot of people who hadn't really paid attention to this ongoing war on our reproductive rights finally did start to. But I think, you know, while I'm glad to see that um, attention and awareness and support, I mean, like, you know, it's not just these direct and overt abortion bans, which are usually challenged and usually they got like blocked in court. But, you know, a lot of the times what pushes care out of reach really is like, again, those sneakier restrictions that kind of just come together and um, will kind of force people away from reaching care, even if you can still legally technically have an abortion. So, yeah. Yeah. It feels like our U S government, uh, cares quote unquote about the unborn babies of 
all women. But then the minute that these babies are here, they can give a shit about who these babies then become as adults. Mm-hmm. And I, I think reading about reading your book and also just feeling your passion for reproductive justice also made me think about how we need to restructure how we think about parenting, specifically mothering. I think that in this country, we raise up the the traditional nuclear family suburban life sort of way of parenting, but there's a lot of different ways to raise a child. Uh, I know in the black community, Ooh. other mothering is a very common thing. You have a lot of, there's a lot of single moms within the African-American community, within the Asian, uh, uh, Hispanic community. I don't think it's super common in the Asian community. Is it? I mean, it's, 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 it, it, it I was raised by a single mom. I was just, so. I know. Yes. For sure. So we'll. So I'll say. I'll say yes. Other mothering. I'll say is across the board is a form of mothering that we don't talk about, which is the idea of mothers coming together to support and help each other. Because as we know, it takes a village to raise a child. But our U.S. Uh, society would like for us to think that the only way to properly raise a child is to have a nuclear family. And I think when yeah. we're talking about reproductive justice, we've also got to address how we view parenting and allow other ways of parenting to come to the surface and be just as valid. For sure. So I feel like we can't really talk about reproductive justice without (laughs) discussing the gender orgasm gap. So I love this one. Full disclosure, I had never heard of the gender orgasm gap. Me neither. So I love a book (laughs) that makes me cross-examine, research. I love it. Uh, For people who have never heard of the gender orgasm gap, can you just explain what that is and how it relates to rape culture? Sure, definitely. So yeah, the gender orgasm gap, this definitely refers to um, disparities, like in how many men who in straight sex um, like heterosexual um, sexual encounters will reach orgasm versus how many women. And yeah, I think a lot of research has shown over um, the course of years um, that men often experience this at much higher rates, which definitely isn't surprising. And definitely, as you say, relates to reproductive justice in terms of how, you know, um, reproductive justice is about all of us thriving and being autonomous and um, safe in our bodies and definitely, um, you know, having that freedom to experience sexual pleasure. And um, yeah, and I think that, you know, as you say, I think that it might not be obvious, but I definitely see this as relating a lot to our greater rape culture, because um, I think like in terms of heterosexual contexts, um, like the devaluation of women's safety, I think really goes hand in hand with the devaluation of our pleasure and our consent. And I think that, you know, um, you know how yeah. <laughs> um, our sex life. <laughs> She's like, I do this for a living. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I cut you off, Kylie. Keep going. Oh, you keep going. It. You're totally fine. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, I mean, like, I'm sure we all know that, like, um, our sex ed system in the US is just deeply not only um, inadequate, but harmful and dangerous um, in terms of how so few states require accurate, let alone inclusive sex ed. And we definitely aren't teaching about consent. We definitely aren't teaching about um, women's safety, let alone our overall experience. Um, We're treating that as tangential. And I mean, of course, then like if we're not even teaching about consent, we're not teaching about pleasure. We're not teaching about um, enjoyment of sex either and suggesting that women's experience and all of that doesn't matter. And we're implicitly teaching that consent isn't even something you have to ask for or proactively seek. Um, Mm -hmm. And I definitely think, you know, if we're not even teaching that most 
basic concept of consent. We're not teaching about how it has to be, you know, reciprocal, how it has to be non-coerced, how it has to be mutual and enthusiastic and all of these things. And so overall, we're just really suggesting that um, women's safety and their experience overall in sexual encounters doesn't matter. And, you know, I think differing, yeah, I think that um, that's kind of how I see it. Correct me if I'm wrong. Our current president, when he was running, uh, <laughs> you're like, oh God, last thing you're gonna now? say. <laughs> um, you know, 2016, he made the phrase "grab him by the pussy" oh, yeah. famous, and he normalized what I would think is rape culture. Is that, would mm-hmm. you co-sign yeah. on that idea? <laughs> um, uh, and also, what does rape culture? What does the movement against rape culture look like today? Well, I think it's really interesting how social media and the internet have been in many ways such a gift to organizing sure, and creating sure. spaces where survivors can come together mm-hmm. and speak about, you know, the ex- the many different experiences we've had and create, you know, safe spaces of like solidarity and kind of um, moving these conversations forward and not, I don't want to say like normalizing, but I think making sure that everyone that we recognize the prevalence of this, whether that was yes, all women or me too, and kind of pushing back on those narrative, like individualistic narratives of like, Oh, it's just like some bad men, but recognizing this systemic problem of this. Yeah. Of this threat that goes with us everywhere. Um, And I think that it is definitely the case that um, I do think social media and the internet have been helpful in that way. But I think as I'm sure, you know, I mean, like it's also created an entirely different, new dimension of harassment and threats and online violence. And yeah. And I would say, I mean, it gave rise to, you know, um, to what's called like the incel movement or the involuntary celibate and just given so much space to, you know, really dangerous misogynists. And I think in many ways led to, you know, I'm sure we remember the 2014 shooting in Santa Barbara, uh, which was directly like targeting women and feminists and by someone who did identify and um and even shared a manifesto on the internet about you know incel thinking and i think mm-hmm. that you know it just goes to show i think again that like um really speaking to that truth that like there's no one positive or negative outcome that really ends feminist struggles it's really just constantly an ebb and flow and yeah. i think that yeah that goes to how things like the internet and social media have been really helpful in many ways and have created a lot of new scary challenges and others but yeah mm-hmm. well said yeah. yeah um in the book you talk about privilege and oppression are often uh, simultaneous experiences and can you talk to us about how you how you arrived at that conclusion and how you've experienced that in your own life yeah definitely and um yeah i think that um jacqueline and i were talking a bit about um our upbringings at the beginning of, or I guess before we started recording. So I think kind of going back to that, um, I grew up in a middle-class and predominantly um, Asian suburb where I think in many ways, my peers and me were socialized to kind of strive toward working in the Silicon Valley and working in finance or just strive to be traditionally high achieving within like this capitalist, um, patriarchal and white supremacist um, context. And so there was never really much emphasis placed on social justice values at all. Um, And I think that um, it was definitely early experiences like with sexual harassment, with sexual violence, with seeking um, medication, abortion care, and all of that um, kind of really 
put me in the space of understanding that, of understanding, I think, you know, the role of the privileges of my family's socioeconomic standing, of, you know, me being cisgendered and able-bodied and kind of recognizing how different my experiences might have been without those privileges and just being aware that I think in all of our lived experiences, um, privilege and oppression really are simultaneous and, um, you know, every single facet of our, of, of our identity really interacts to shape that overall experience. And I think, um, I think kind of drawing on those experiences that I had and being reflective of that on, or reflecting on them and thinking of how things could maybe have been, um, harder or less hard based on different, um, pieces of my identity. I think that kind of pushed me to want to work with reproductive justice organizations to start writing um, about, you know, these experiences and just, you know, the cultural and political events in the last few years really, um, yeah, really gave a lot of inspiration and a lot of, um, a lot to reflect on. And um, yeah. Well, Kylie, we are happy that you didn't end up in Silicon Valley because we need your voice and we need your insight to keep this feminist fight going, to keep yes. this feminist energy high hot, and to keep it going for the long haul. So how do we avoid feminist burnout? Or And what are some of your favorite techniques, maybe privately, that you just like to do for self-care to keep you know, the energy high, the outlook sunny? We want to know all the things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely to your point, um, you know, there have been so many <laughs> devastating moments in the past few years. And it's just like, it's inhuman to really, I think, be able to just kind of, um, to just kind of brush it off, keep going. Yeah. Without yeah. like any um, matter of like taking care of yourself. And so I think, you know, it's been said over and over, but I definitely think it's true that um, taking care of yourself and others just on the most basic level is like a radical act. It is what, you know, empowers us to be able to keep going and make any progress in these fights. And I think having community and having accountability and knowing that nothing ever, you know, nothing can get done alone and nothing is ever all on you. I think that that is mm. a really important piece of um, moving forward and not and like staying committed to this fight. And I think, you know, yeah, I think that movements for justice really have to be rooted in taking care of each other on that interpersonal level and not losing sight of the fact that, you know, like why we are in these struggles at all is to take care of each other, is to um, love each other. And I think that, um, you know, I think my thinking really is that um, like, even if we do lose like battles here and there, which is, which we definitely have in recent years, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's like going to happen should, again. Yeah. <laughs> We should never like see that as a loss, but as like laying the groundwork for future progress. I definitely saw that with, um, you know, when Kavanaugh was or Brett Kavanaugh was um, nominated and confirmed to the Supreme Court. That was definitely like a really difficult time for me, for a lot of people. And it did feel like a really, really devastating loss um, at the end of the day when he was confirmed. But I think I kind of just really tried to see that as a matter of, you know, like there was so much organizing around that. There was so much solidarity there was so much showing up there were so many protests and there was so much like consciousness i think of how important these elections are to like shape these processes and i think that you know we really saw a lot of groundwork laid there and i think that after that you know there was that surge in women and women of color who were elected to 
offices across the country, like within yeah. a few weeks yeah. of him being confirmed. Yeah. And so, amazing. yeah, it really was. And it was definitely a really special moment. And I think that, you know, we really, um, it really is a matter of, you know, there's no one loss, there's no one win that really ends these struggles. It's just like really the struggle of our lives and for our lives to really just keep going and to really just constantly strive toward a more equitable future and toward like a future that doesn't leave anyone behind. And there's no like real metrics for that, you know, like we're just, right. there's, yeah. yeah. And yeah, I think um, to answer your question, I guess like on a personal level of avoiding that burnout and just keeping things going. Um, I love, I, I mean, like I love journaling. I love like really reflecting, <laughs> okay. but yeah, I mean, it's part of so how much I. I love writing. <laughs> Um, I yeah, I think, <laughs> yeah, I think having friends who like really share your values and share your vision for the world and like, um, That's important. really want to take care of or really mutually take care of each other in these fights. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that was, that was so beautifully said. Um, mm-hmm. you said something that really touched me that I also stand behind, which is, you know, I'm always saying this on the show where, you know, we are all one. There is no black or white or Asian or yellow or brown. In the end, the human existence is the human existence, is the human experience. You know, it's it's the, I think about like, you know, when people say like if bees um, go extinct, then the entire ecosystem, you know, will crash. And I think about it on a similar level, humanly, where we are all connected. And I think we've been conditioned for so long to see the other as the other Mm -hmm. and not think like, well, what if that person is me? What if that person was me and to treat them how, how I would treat myself. And so um, I love that you said that it ultimately comes down to really taking care of each other on that interpersonal level. Um, And that's absolutely correct. So I just want to thank you for seeing so far ahead and having such like a a wonderful attitude and a belief about you know that there is no win or lose that it's just what it is um and and I just I'm so grateful that you you can be alive right now because mm-hmm. can we clone you <laughs> <laughs> so Kylie I think that Jackie and I know the answer to this but I, I have to ask because the title of the book is calling me to where do you think a woman's place is? You know, I think like historically we've seen and definitely today, like in at the forefront of like revolutions. And I think, yeah, I mean, I mean, it really is that simple, I think. And I think, you know, it just speaks to how across like fights for racial justice, labor justice, immigrant mm-hmm. justice, all of these things. Um, it's women, it's women of color. It's young women who are always pushing those boundaries because I think, um, and I think that, you know, if anything, we continue to see that today. And yeah. that's really what I was kind of trying to emphasize in that title. So, oh, you did. Great. You got it. You are. You you <laughs> live it too, which is great. You are the example. Absolutely. Well, Kylie, how can our listeners keep up with you? We want all your handles, your, your mm-hmm. websites. We want everything. We want our listeners to be fans of you. Oh, thank you. Um, well, definitely my Twitter for, um, Lots of feminist rants and also to know what I'm eating at 2 a.m. Yes. yes, <laughs> um, yes. It's um, Kylie T. Chung, which is K-Y-L-I-E-T-C-H-E-U-N-G. Um, and then I also keep um, a Tumblr where I just 
make it a feed of all of my links to all of my writing. Okay. Okay. Someone's someone's keeping Tumblr afloat. I like to hear I that. Know. Someone's gotta. Go ahead, Kylie. <laughs> so it's just my name, kyliechung.tumblr.com. And so that's cool. K-Y-L-I-E-C-H-E-U-N-G.tumblr.com. But <laughs> yeah. Um, and then we can also find you on Insta, right? Yeah. It's just my name, 15. So it's K-Y-L-I-E. C H U N G um one five. But yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, Kylie, thank you so, so much for being on the show. And thank you for really inspiring us to dive into all things literary this August um, with this last month of summer uh, upon us. If you guys are looking for a new book to read, skip a chintzy beach read, skip a chintzy rom-com, pick up Kylie's book, a woman's place. It is so great. I'm telling you, it's great to read poolside. It's great to read by the beach and it's great to read right before bed. It will expand the morning, your mind. Yeah, you'll, you'll be, your brain will be just like filled with so many amazing things. Um, and you'll have to face yourself, which is great. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think it's a really important time to do that. And we're going to leave it there. If you liked this episode, give us feedback. If you want to stay connected with Kylie, we're going to drop all of her information in the show notes. If you want to be featured on our small business section of the show, put your money where your mouth is. Go ahead and either DM us at... Uh, Black and Yellow Podcast, or sorry, or you can email us at podcastblackandyellow at gmail.com. Sometimes that gets a little wonky in the brain. Yeah, too many, too exactly. many black and yellows. <laughs> um, or if you want to reach out to us on the gram individually, I am Alana Webster. You can find me at Renegade of Fun. I'm Jacqueline Chung Young on the gram. We're also on Apple Podcasts and Spotify um, at the Black and Yellow Podcast. Um, so if you guys could also drop a review or rate us, mm. that would be great. It'd keep this baby afloat, keep bringing uh, you guys wonderful content. Um, and we'd love to hear from you as well, what you guys think about us. Um, thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode and tune in next time. Yeah, y'all, get lit with some lit. <laughs> Bye, guys. Bye.